0: Welcome back to another episode of All Else Equal. Today we're blessed to have Rudy Bachman back on the show. Rudy's recently found himself at the center of a public policy debate regarding German imports of Russian natural gas after co-authoring a brief uh, on the hypothetical impacts of a German embargo. To, To quote someone on Twitter, Rudy is hashtag not a scientist, but has exposed himself as a political hashtag agenda pusher and hashtag econ blocker.
1: A lot of hashtags, but I like hashtag econ blocker. Yeah.
0: What do you think? Let's get right to it with all else equals favorite econ blocker.
1: Rudy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, very glad
0: to be here. Yeah. So, uh, all right, this is, an, this is an educational podcast for Notre Dame students. Um, so, we're going to have to talk about the economics of everything that's going on. But uh, before we do, what's it like being famous now? <laughs>
2: Well, I guess more like infamous. Uh, um, uh, Well, I I didn't necessarily seek the limelight. I mean, it's on the one hand, I guess, gratifying to to see that your work and thoughts have some impact in the real world. Uh, On the other hand, it's uh, not so pretty when the German Chancellor on the most important uh, talk show in German on German TV uh, on Sunday evenings, uh, although not by name, but you know, basically calls out your work as uh, irresponsible uh, uh, number crunching. Uh, uh, to, uh, to translate it, uh, that's uh, that's an interesting experience. Um, But it gets you into the news, and after that, everyone wants to talk to you, and I should say, um, a a field of eight uh, uh, co-authors that we had on our, it's not even a paper, it's really a policy brief, Uh, it's not original research, Um, but um, yeah, that team spends, I should say, you know, both the United States The UK, um, Germany, and uh, sort of within economics is actually very interdisciplinary. Macroeconomists, energy, and environmental economists. So um, maybe you could. So let's let's get to the brief and sort of maybe you can tell me timeline.
0: What was the motivation and sort of and when when was it
2: originally distributed? Honestly, I don't know. It, it sat there for a little bit, actually. And sort of the, the kicker was that, you know, that mentioning uh, by the Chancellor. Um uh, on German national TV, as I said, the most important uh, political talk show um, uh, in Germany, so it was watched by millions. It had been circulating kind of you know within the administration, within the the ministries, sort of at the staff level, sort of the staff economists had been talking about, but it hadn't been in any way famous or any uh, anything. okay, how did how did it start? The motivation for us really was that um, some politicians basically, so the idea of an embargo um, had been discussed sort of as an obvious reaction to the atrocities uh, we have seen committed by the Russians uh, in Ukraine. And uh, so that this was kind of on on some people's mind the journalists had asked about that and politicians had basically always uh, sort of rejected the idea out of hand and they basically said this would lead to mass poverty and I'm using the Basically, the English translations of the German and originals here: mass poverty, mass unemployment, social unrest. So, uh, to put this in an American context, uh, for our younger listeners, if you have ever seen sort of a movie from the Great Depression, basically that that basically mm-hmm. is the uh, is in some sense the picture that was sort of uh, evoked in people's minds, I guess. Um, and then you know a bunch of economists, which some of us, uh, some of them are really close friends and co-authors. So various email chains really started. Uh, you know, it's basically, well, what what would actually happen? And um, you know, is this true? I mean, uh, is there any evidence that we can use, uh, or any model, any any framework that we can use to think about these claims of mass unemployment and uh, mass poverty and social unrest and. And, you know, so it was at the very beginning, pure scientific curiosity, obviously sort of motivated by the atrocities that, you know, I think no one can just uh, see on TV and and, and and not be moved by them. But at the end of the day, it was the, the starting point was scientific curiosity. And so, you know, we, we asked ourselves, what would be a good model framework to start with? And... Um, all economic models are imperfect. They have blind spots, but, um, that's how we ended up with a version of the so-called Baquet-Fari model, which is a model that has two elements, which we thought would be crucial to think about it. Um, actually three. Um, the first one is that it has, um, it's a multi-sector model. So it models the input-output structure of, uh, in this case, the German economy or the, the various countries, uh, in it. Um, and, uh, so that's, uh, that, that we thought where, because obviously, uh, it's in particular a gas embargo, more generally an energy embargo, um, would, would start sort of at the very beginning of the value chain, right? This would be mm-hmm. very different from Corona, where we had to shut down, uh, things at the sort of t- towards the end of the value chain in the, in the, in the services sector. Here it would, would basically be at the beginning of the value chain. And we kind of wanted to have a model that kind of can capture how this would kind of feed through the value chain. So that's the first element. The second element is uh, international trade. So in the end, it's a 36, I believe. I forgot exactly the exact number, uh, sector across 40 country model. Okay. So we have international trade. Because we wanted to model the idea, and this, I think, and we, we really learned something from that as we went through the model, this idea that the longer the value chain is, you have these intermediate products. And even though you may not be able to produce the first intermediate product in Germany anymore, for example, if you shut down gas completely in brackets, which not only we, this is not only a possible policy instrument on our side, but it's also something that Putin might use mm-hmm. literally any day, yeah, right. right? So, we, we, at the very least, even if you don't okay. want to do it yourself, that's you need to think about, it, what to think about it, it, exactly right. what what the consequences would be, um, That's just as an aside. So, you know, when you have these value chains that every, at every point in time, they're intermediate goods produced, you know, and then the question is, can these intermediate goods potentially be imported mm. from, say, uh, America, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is pretty clear that we can't immediately import uh, liquefied gas from America. That's not possible. Um, first of all, it's not so clear that the Americans are so keen on producing it, but I hope we will see whether, I mean, America could become a very, very big gas exporter in, 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 in the next couple of years but uh, you still have to ship it to Europe and Europe at least Germany doesn't have the capacity to actually deliquify that mm-hmm. gas uh, anymore. so but you know just because you can't buy gas immediately from America doesn't mean you couldn't buy say steel mm-hmm. or fertilizer which is produced with gas in Germany uh, from the United States. That should be easier more easily possible and we want to have a model that captures this at least somewhat. Mm. Thirdly, the element uh, the, what we liked about that model is it's simple enough that you can kind of, sort of work your way through it you don't completely rely on the computer um you can kind of understand it sort of you know there's certain paper and pencil elements to it that helps you really understand analytically what's going on and uh, it does it's not just one of those models where which is a completely a, a complete black box and that's how we produce that
1: paper then I think intermediate macro students should be on the lookout for this coming up, right? Yeah. and
2: so let's, let's think I about don't know so about that. It's, <laughs> it, it is more complicated than what at least I teach in intermediate macro. But, but it, it is a model that, you know, is, I mean, sometimes in economics, as you know, you have these big DSG models where, you know, and at right. some point it kind of gets, it's really difficult to to understand if you are not uh, Marty Eichenbaum or Larry Cristiano, right? So, um um, but this model is a, is a model that, you, and, 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 actually what you learn from this model, that's what I want to say, is this sort of this import mechanism is really important. Mm. So, uh, which also means that it, this is something that you need some preparation for. This comes out of our model. So, um, that, you know, these import uh, sort of changing your, you know, the structure, the geographic structure from where you get your intermediate imports will take some time for yeah. these German manufacturers. manufacturers, And uh, the, the message of our model is you've got to prepare now yeah. so that the American producer, you know, can actually, you know, ship, shipment uh, shipping lines need to be rearranged and and maybe the american producer needs to produce to eu specifications and stuff like that mm-hmm. but uh, you know there's a lot of money to be made and with with the with the appropriate uh, you know warning time this should be possible um but it also will take some time this is one crucial impact or this is one crucial channel is international trade uh, that would uh, that would help to to mitigate uh, the impact of uh, an embargo, no matter who 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 does mm. it. So that's the
0: counterfactual: is whoever does the embargo, we're going to see how this filters through the model, and
2: we're going to see that, ultimately, like that was the idea. Yes. Okay, and and then, it, it's really a positive an economist economics Strong, It's a positive paper. We never wrote you should do an embargo. We just said what if it's a what if paper. Yeah, so. Positive as opposed to normative, right? So there's no claims of, you know, we should do this or shouldn't do this. I privately, as a (laughs) private citizen, have come out on social media. And then later on uh, on non-social media, I guess traditional media, saying... Look, not just our study. The good, the other good thing that this thing did is that uh, our, our results were so controversial and, and sparked so much debate that other researchers sat down and also tried to estimate mm-hmm. uh, uh, the impact of such an embargo. And indeed, the numbers are, the, the, the range of the numbers are big. Um, you know, sort of from the most positive scenario of say half a percent of, a, uh, of GDP loss to all the way to 6% GDP loss. But, you know, so those are now the have, key results. Those are the key results. I mean, and, and, and these other people have used very different models. So, so now there are business cycle models. So there's a, a, lo, a sort of a variety of model classes. So we're not just relying on this one, by model. So there's a variety. That's basically the range. Um, and now at the end of the day, now we have these numbers and politicians have to decide. And as a private citizen, I would say even a 6% uh, a recession is, is a little bigger for Germany than the Corona recession, a little slightly bigger than the financial crisis recession. But it's not something, it's not, we are not talking about Great Depression style, um, uh, style calamities here. Right. Um, they are handable. You can, they're manageable, uh, with, uh, a good economic policy. Now, the coronavirus recession was sort of unique,
0: are uh, the different metaphors that were put out there, like, you know, we put the economy into hibernation or something like that. And so we had a swift sort of, there was a stark uh, recession, but then there was a quick uh, recovery. Was it really so quick? I mean,
2: some lockdowns uh, what, were repeated. What yeah. did the MBER dated at is, is like there was like a two month yeah, recession, like the actual, <laughs> recession. recession. The actual recession, yeah. but very we, very locked, we locked down of uh, some sectors repeatedly and over an extended period of time, uh, to, of two years, frankly, and we are still doing it. One major economy uh, in the world right now is still doing it. Namely, China. How should we think about
0: the time frame? Um, of an embargo, of a German embargo on natural gas from Russia. You know, sort of, does the the model give you some idea of what the short run, the medium run, and the
2: long run look like? Or like what those actually are in terms of... Time? Our model, okay, if I model not, it's a static model. Uh, time is a question of how you calibrate the elasticity, sort of the, the parameters that govern, um, you know, how flexible the economy is. And they are basically sort of uh, yearly parameters. Uh, so, you know, so, so some of this adjustment is sort of should happen. I mean, we, we take them from previous studies and we think of a time frame of sort of roughly 12 months, uh, which makes it tight. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, we still have time because um, uh, over the summer month, uh, nothing need to happen because the 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 gas that comes from and, and Germany is not a hundred percent, especially Germany, is not a hundred percent dependent on Russian gas. There's a lot from the Netherlands and Norway. That gas alone should be should be uh, uh, enough to get us to the summer month because there's no heating. And the biggest chunk is, is the biggest usage of, of natural gas is in the winter month, uh, when you need to heat it. So the industrial use, uh, what we kind of have in addition, we are, you know, there's also some, some in storage. It's not that our storage is completely empty. That should easily get us uh, into the fall. And, uh, so it's, it's tight. We, we need to start now, basically, or yesterday, but, uh, you know, there's, there's still some time, and sort of then in the long run, it really depends on how quickly we can get these LNG terminals. Um, um, I mean, that's that's one sort of idea. Um, uh, how, how we can get those on uh, online. I mean, some okay, this would be from the US, um, or? could be from. Qatar, for example I just don't know anything about the process um, of taking liquid natural gas and yeah I mean know. sort of sort of yeah so what 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 it's a it's a fascinating technology if you think about it so um, oil and coal are roughly a world market product it is true that coal and also oil have different Chemical uh, uh sort of uh, have different chemical properties depending on which country they are from, and so not all refineries can refine um, all oils, oil types in the world. So it's not a perfectly homogenous good, but it's they are pretty homogenous, and because they are transportable on ships, it's 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 much more of a, of a world market good that you can buy around the world. What makes gas natural gas special is that it's pipeline uh, because it's gas. (laughs) So you need pipelines. And that makes it uh, uh, in that form actually a local good, right? Mm -hmm. So it's Uh, hardwired. There's a a pipeline between Russia and literally Germany. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Germany doesn't take it, no one else will. I mean, they literally have to let it go in the air or burn it or eventually they can build pipelines to China or India or something. But, uh, you know, in the short run, if we don't take it, if Europe doesn't take it, that gas is wasted. Okay, and what's the genius of of the of the LNG term uh, uh, technology, the liquefied natural gas technology, is is you basically make gas a, a world market good potentially because it becomes then like oil, it's liquid, right? Mm-hmm. You put it in ships, okay. um, and and the problem is you need. The infrastructure on both ends of the shipping shipping line to um, first liquefy it and then de it, and uh, and that building that uh, Germany in a catastrophic move, they had actually thought about building those LNG terminals in Germany, and it was a political decision not to do that, mm. which made us incredibly dependent on Russian gas. Um, this would be much less of a problem if we had them on, in uh, online. Um, so that's what they're building now. They're trying to build them. There's also, but there's, you know, crisis times, there's an enormous sort of engineers have good ideas. So now what what, what they are trying to do in the meantime is actually they're floating uh, liquid liquefied gas uh, terminals. They're basically ships mm. that can do this um, uh, somewhere off the coast, and then they will liquefy it, and then sort of you can use pipeline for the last, for the last kilometers, basically okay. to um, uh, to get the gas. So th- this is all uh, going on right now, and the faster we can can get this. So I read yesterday that these floating terminals they can be they can apparently be online, and they can three of them can substitute 50 percent of Germany's Russian uh, gas import, natural gas imports. Okay. And that's a lot, and that would help quite a bit uh, to to kind of do this step by step bridges until we have. So there's a full LNG um, terminals in place uh, to yeah just buy our gas from the Americans, from Qatar. Um, I think the Maghreb states, Algeria and um, and Morocco uh, produce gas. And uh, so until we have that in place where we then can, um, where we're in a new steady state, basically. So I
1: have, I have two questions. The first one is like a very broad, very high level question about, Kind of planning for this over the course of maybe like 10, 15 years, we've seen Russia have these acts of, I don't know, aggression towards Ukraine
2: prior and other countries. In the other, region. Ca- other countries, including Syria. Which people don't forget, right. t- tend to forget that the Syrian conflict is actually Russia, you know, trying out its weapons. That's right. Um, and so not to get too
1: in the weeds, politic, German, uh, into German politics, but was this ever thought of in the planning process of dependency on Russia. There were
2: people who warned uh, uh, about that. And I mean, first of all, from the Allies, the Eastern Europeans have told the German politicians over and over and over again that these things will someday be used as a weapon. Um, And this is exactly how it turned out. Some political parties did it. The Green Party said many, may, for many, many years, they have been warning uh, that this is exactly what would happen, uh, and um, but they were not heeded. Uh, there is a, sort of a traditional, well, let's just call them a cartel of uh, certain political parties that are very into fossil energy, that uh, have sort of a traditionally good, um, you know, they get a lot of political support from. Industries that either produce or depend very closely uh, on fossil energy. Um, and those industries themselves and the trade unions themselves, those are the three parties. So it's the parties, the trade unions, and uh, the industry associations. And those are an incredibly powerful cartel, um, which uh, did not, now to use econ parlance, uh, did not price in um, you know, the, the security policy externality here. I mean, we, when we talk about, there's, in other words, when we use fossils, we do not just have a climate externality, right? We, 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 we lower the, we have, climate change and do not usually price that indirectly unless we have policy measures there's a, it, it turned out and people have been warning about that uh, there is a security policy externality on top if you use fossil and um, uh, now that price is being paid by civilians in the Ukraine with literally their lives mm. and um, yeah this is a colossal policy failure in Germany. Um, but it's not for lack of, uh, warnings. It's, this was a deliberate, a quite a deliberate decision. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, think about, t- to use an analogy, Germany now has basically its Greek crisis moment, I would say. Mm. Um, but it's, it's not living up, uh, um, uh, to paying for it, right? It's just as we probably correctly said to Greece, uh, in the Euro crisis, you know, you, had a bad fiscal policy, you caused externalities in terms of the danger of financial contagion across at least, uh, you know, southern Europe, French banks, etc. And you are being punished now by a very, 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 very severe recession through austerity policy. And the Germans were the ones instituting and imposing that on Greece. Um, the Germans now have the same crisis, just not with failed fiscal policy, but with failed energy and security mm-hmm. policy. Um, unfortunately, Germany is big enough, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, at the end of the day a hegemon in Europe, and no one has really the power to punish the Germans for it. That's the problem right now. And the Germans are obviously not willing to live up to it. And so um, the victims are the dead in Ukraine. So my
1: second question was more along the lines of kind of let's imagine a scenario that that actually comes true where we see an embargo imposed or the Russians actually shutting off supply. What is kind of the economics of what happens in day-to-day Germany then? Do we see prices soaring for natural gas? Do we start to see, you know, certain... Um, mechanisms come into place to reduce demand right because supply is clearly going to be fixed to whatever they can generate on their own offshore or whatever stores
2: they have so although that's not fixed that's getting that's getting better it's getting over better, time it's right? will, it will get better over time but this is important right, right. so this is then a matter of you know um, uh, you know how can we get to to always this next step right first we have we have um uh, we have the a storage which we then need to use up then you know that will hopefully get us close to where we can have the floating lng terminals and they those will help us hopefully get to the the physical infrastructure of lng terminals so that's one thing i should say, i should uh, say though that i mean it, by the way it doesn't have to be a complete embargo there are all manner of intermediate of intermediate solutions um like an import tax, an import tariff on Russian gas, oil and coal, depending on how you want to do it. There's the idea floating around of escrow accounts where you basically say to Putin, you only get a certain fraction of, mm-hmm. uh, because let's face it, Putin actually makes more money now than before because of the increase in gas price, right? So uh, it's true that quantities have already declined um, quite a bit, actually. Um, but uh, uh, the price effect uh, sort of, you know, overcomes that. And Putin is actually getting, a uh, right now, the Russian government and probably Putin himself is getting actually rich uh, because of the the huge uh, uh, gas prices uh, and other energy prices so what i'm saying is there are, there there are the intermediate solutions like these escrow accounts where you only give put in a certain fraction uh, mm-hmm. and the rest is basically held in in escrow and then and you say you know you get it when certain conditions uh, with sure. ukraine are satisfied or something like that but okay so let's assume and of course, Putin could always. Putin is not a small actor. So in a purely competitive market, what would happen is that, you know, the the Russian counterpart would just swallow that and still make money. And though they would, from economic rationality, they would keep doing what they're doing and earn less. Um, but of course, Putin is a strategic actor, and uh, he has shown not exactly an inclination to follow economic rationales mm-hmm. because economically it makes no sense to have this war, right, obviously. Um, and so he he might retaliate uh, to that with an embargo and so you have to be prepared for the embargo situation. All right, so what would happen? As I said, there is... Still ample time for oil and coal. The European Union, I think today, the European Union is basically um, is, is imposing an uh, a coal embargo. That's what they that's what they said. I'm not exactly sure exactly what the timeline is. I haven't. I just read the news. Literally, the the headline that a coal embargo is coming. So I don't know whether that's going to be tomorrow or like in six, in six months. Mm-hmm. But I think. That that part is, we are fine. We're just going to buy that on the world market. Similarly with oil, um, the big thing is gas. What would happen? We would use, uh, draw down our storage. We would build up all these uh, first floating uh, LNG terminals, then the physical terminals. And then uh, what we are currently not working on, but should be working on is, uh, we, I say the German, German politicians, is uh, how do we reduce demand? So they are working very much uh, and I think in a good way to increase supply, to find substitute supply in the world market, but there are currently the the institutions are such that uh, demand is not uh, uh, reduced, and that is going to create problems uh, down the road. That is, there's a, in my view a ticking time bomb. So, the, so for example, just to just give you a concrete example, the regulation is such that. That German households are the last ones, so it's a, basically a, a system of cascading rationing. So they're basically a law that says, you know, some industries, the industry will be shut down first, and then there's sort of a. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you know, then then household, but sort of first industry. So households are pretty much made whole because we will all we basically, in principle, have enough to heat the the, the households if we shut down industry completely. And then there's some, I guess, some very crucial infrastructure exceptions that even come after the households, I believe, like hospitals or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's the cascade; it's rationing. Um, we don't use the market mechanism here at all right now. Yeah, it's strange, right? Yeah, usually, usually all, prices are doing that yes, sort of rational. That's exactly what you would like to do, uh, see, see done as an economist, but that's not what we're doing. So the households can, they can just you know keep heating the way they heat, um, especially since some of their contracts are actually long term contracts and. Uh, uh, To use economic, uh, technical term, there's a nominal rigidity here. Basically, they have these long-term gas uh, contracts, and a lot of the households don't feel, actually, the increased gas Mm -hmm. prices that industry does feel Mm -hmm. um, already. Uh, And so this is a big problem. This is a major problem. So right now, there's no incentives whatsoever for the household to either do some simple insulation uh, steps uh, for their house to maybe get heat pumps... Which is difficult, I know, because uh, because of the current supply chain problems in China, you need intermediate parts to to produce these uh, heat pumps. To to produce the heat pumps, and then installing the heat pumps, you need specialized people. Which, uh, similar to the United States, the labor market is tight in Germany, so that's all a problem. Still, I'm uh, I don't think um, the additional heat pumps we could get into. uh, into houses is zero, mm-hmm. but sort of that's one margin, and there's no incentive whatsoever to you know to maybe not heat a room in your apartment or you know go with two or three degrees or lower uh, mm-hmm. and put on this additional sweater. Uh, none none of this there's no incentive right now uh, to do this. The only thing we have is appeals from politicians, Interesting. And, and I'm afraid this this will indeed at least should Putin should it be done by Putin and. Putin's incentives is indeed to wait, actually. If he wants to maximally hurt us, he will do this in the winter. Mm. Um, because that's when we really need the gas. And if, right. if, we, if we do not have any preparation, this will indeed lead to some calamities. And that, in, in fact, I think then then the, the, the impact could actually be much bigger than we estimate mm-hmm. because of botched policies. It's interesting that the, the, the same...
0: Sort of tool is being used by both sides as this threat, right? German Germany can threaten to say, well, you know, we're not going to take your natural gas, and, and Russia can, at the same time can say, you know, we're not going to we're not going to send you natural gas. Um, it's just weird that both parties are threatened to use the same thing against each other. Um, well,
2: because I mean, it's a mutual beneficial trade. Yeah, no, that's the cool um, thing and, about and economics. So, right? And <laughs> so, exactly, of course, a mutually beneficial trade that did not prize in the externalities that I described before, namely the externalities on the Ukrainian uh, people right now, and more generally in the, in um, the sense of security and safety for, I would say, entire Eastern Europe, including Finland. Right, I mean, who are on next on the chopping board? In some sense, if Putin wants to move, uh, move beyond the Ukraine. I was going to say something about sort of like at
0: the end of the day, like you know, typically who's going to get hurt by these types of sanctions? Like
2: it's not Putin himself; it's not like German politicians themselves, right? That's true, but the sanctions would hurt if we did it now. The sanctions would massively crush the but, Russian yeah, 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 yeah. It would
0: massively, it's, and I do but like, think What would, does that mean? That means like Russian households like really. True, yeah, yeah, up yeah, but like it like like would
2: Russia. also. It, it. I mean, Putin already needs uh, foreign exchange to to buy spare parts, um, 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 to pay uh, mercenaries that he gets from outside. Um, so I do think it would. Uh, it's it's speculative. I'm not an. You know, military analyst, I don't know exactly how quickly this would impact the battlefield in Ukraine. Um, first of all, I don't think that the probability is zero that it would severely impact his ability. Um, but I also think it would, it would at least crush his ability to go beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ukraine. And it might very well be, be able to limit, to make sure that he limits himself to maybe parts of eastern Ukraine. And I, I don't see why, I, I don't understand the argument why it should have zero impact on his ability to wage war on Ukraine. Whether we'll actually stop the atrocities tomorrow, if we did it today, probably not. Um, but I think it would, it would deal a severe blow to uh, the Russian economy, to the Russian military capabilities. And let's also face it, I think this is underappreciated, Russia is a huge country. It's extremely difficult to govern. Um, the local governors have all their own economic incentives, right? They, in the case of scarcity, what they will do, they will start hoarding things. There we are. I've, I've read uh, on social media already about uh, sugar hoarding in the Russian provinces. And this will generate political instability. Now, do we want this huge country with nuclear weapons to be become politically uh, unstable. I don't uh, uh, unstable. I don't know, um, but uh, it would probably become politically unstable. And this is another angle how how it would hurt uh, uh, the Putin regime. So before we let you go, um, I do
0: want to know something of. About the controversy that this has sparked, and like how much of the controversy that this has sparked is due to sort of economic methodology versus the residual. Um, You can also use this time to apologize for having a last name that starts with B (laughs) if you'd like. Uh, For some reason, that is at the center of of some of this controversy is that your name is Bachman. Why? Well, it's not, doesn't start with a Z. I've just seen things on social media where people are um, accusing you of something related
2: to being the first author author on this brief. Um, oh no! I think that was basically me. Uh, I have been trying to. I've uh, spent some time on social media and, frankly, on traditional media to point out that this is not about me. That this is a collaborative effort. I agree. Um, and so then I just explained sort of the citation conventions in economics, okay, um, and um, for better or for worse. And but that was that's kind of important to me, um, but I don't know why I should apologize for my last. I thing. was just kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you don't, don't actually know, don't. need to apologize. No, no, for no I, know, I know, I know. But so anyway, convenient. I, I it, this is I don't think this has anything to to do with me personally. It just. You know, at some point it got, uh, a preview as the Bachmann paper, the Bachmann et al. paper, and I tried to push, uh, very much against that because it, it is, it was very much a collaborative effort, and I would argue it wasn't even my main effort. Um, I mean, if, if I had to point out two names is, is really David who who, who, who is the, who delivered the model. The code, everything. Uh, ben Moll at LSE is kind of sort of the coordinator of the team, and and Moritz Schillerig and Barnu is a writer. And but everyone had their contribution. It's it's really a truly um, a truly collaborative effort. And I'm certainly not up there with the biggest with the most effort, but you know that's what citation conventions are. I'm I'm put pr- pr- probably the one who is willing uh, the most of the team to kind of engage in social media and media about it. Now, do you think that is leading to these personal attacks? I mean, my my ability to
0: translate German Twitter is limited, uh, but it seems like there have been a number of personal attacks against
2: you related to this. I mean, look—if the German Chancellor calls you out on national TV, some people might uh, use use this as a license to um, to imitate him. I will say though, with the, with the German the German Chancellor, it didn't. It on the one hand it didn't bother me. I mean, it's not that I was personally affected by it. I mean, this is uh, it was an obvious it was an attempt for him, in a pretty tight political situation, um, because he knows what he's doing is controversial, and I think he has an inkling that uh, history will not speak well of him. I I imagine that you know, if if the the history of this war is being written. I don't think any one will say the German chancellor saved the chemical industry. Uh, people will focus on what happened in Ukraine. That's just—I yeah. mean, we, you know, we, you know how this is going to be. He feels that this is—he must feel that it's so for him, that this is the case. So for him, this is a, is a very tight situation. I don't want to be in his, in his spot, and so you know, if he thought he could use a, a little bit of populism which by the way has some tradition in the social with social democratic chancellors in germany there has been a famous instance uh, of uh, chancellor gerhard schröder who did something similar where he kind of you know uh, um, was sort of dismissive of of professors uh, before and so so that you know he tried to def, you know to Gain some ground, I think uh, with this- uh, populist measure, but after corona going after scientists and academics was probably at the end of the day, I think it was a bad move because uh um, had he said uh you know i i um I'm proud that we have economists, so many smart international economists um in Germany that can work on this and that they came forward and and you know that they basically Stepped up, um. But for a variety of reasons, I think, and at the time, it was still true that we, we were almost the only study. That sort of the, the 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 coming in and the rushing in of other studies that that sort of happened a, a, a bit later. By the time you could have easily said, "This is just but one study," uh, the uncertainties are too big. I'm not sure. willing to yeah. uh, to sort of make political decisions uh, out of it. That this would have been a cool and. Um, And chill answer, which, you know, which we would have not not much to say about because, yes, he he has to make the – that's what he has been voted for into office, right? It's his political responsibility, not ours. But then now instead he came across as a little bit, you know, beleaguered and petty and you know then this is a surprisend effect right it you you basically you achieve the exact opposite uh, uh, of what you want mm-hmm. but of course in the wake of that some people uh, i guess on social media thought they could they could also uh, you know go after professors
1: all right well, well yeah let's stop it there
2: Bachmann appreci- yeah.
1: german twitter boss that's right i i said last time Rudy was on. I was like, I wish I knew more German so I could read his Twitter and it is still true today. <laughs> I wish I knew more German. So I, I will. say so
2: that Google translate is pretty good. Okay. Um, so what typically what the English translation gives you, I would say in 95% is pretty good. All right. Unless I use some German jargon or something, but yeah. Rudy, hey, thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks Rudy. for having me.
1: Rudy is always just an incredible guest. Um, what is your big takeaway? after hearing
0: this so i really like rudy's point about writing a positive rather yeah. than a normative brief on what the economic impacts of an embargo could be um, i guess it's not surprising that something even if it's written in a positive uh, manner that such you know with such norm important normative implications would lead to such a large controversy uh, but just for the record i'm firmly team rudy on this one
1: Well, that makes two of us. I'm also on team Rudy. Yeah, I like the idea that as economists, we should be looking at these policies through a positive lens. And for all those students out there, don't be afraid to pick apart some of the fiscal policies that we're seeing. We'll link um, to a Vox EU discussion and um, Rudy's Twitter in the description of our podcast. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the All Else Equal podcast. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to email allelsequalpodcast at gmail.com.